Yes, here we go, another uh, segment of Beyond the Grassy Knoll. And we have with us today, and this is going to be the short version just for now, author Hank Harrison. Um, we're going to talk about, I think, a, a situation uh, in the rock world uh, and also in people's lives that's been, um, I guess, the subject of a great deal of uh, conjecture and suspicion and curiosity. And we're going to talk about that today and perhaps some other things. Uh, Hank, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Sure. Now, um, what I alluded to, I did so obviously anonymously, and I believe that this is a work in process. Do you want to tell us something about um, what you're currently working on? Well, I got, I can't write one book at a time, so I have to write about three of them at the same time, and uh, I have Dead Book Volume 3, oh boy. which is finished, but it needs to be pretty much tightened up, and uh, that's been in the process for years now. And then I have a, a book on the Holy Grail, which is part of a quarto of four books uh, on medieval and Renaissance Grail studies. But that's so boring, I don't want to bring it up on your show. <laughs> but it's exciting to me. And uh, the other one is called uh, uh, Love Kills, The Assassination of Kurt Cobain. I wanted to approach it as an assassination because... Cobain was one of these firebrand guys that nobody liked him in the mainstream, and uh, he stuck to his guns. And I, my theory is that he was pretty much assassinated out of jealousy and a few other motives, and that he uh, didn't like money very much, and that he had enough money for himself to continue on for the rest of his life, and he wanted to drop out, and somebody killed him. So it's not like he killed himself. And uh, that's been a common theory for a long time, but I have some new facts and some new developments that are really very precise. You, know, you strike me in a sense, literally, as almost or exactly like um, a linchpin figure, as Cassidy was between the Beats and the Hippies. Yeah, I, I kind of sensed that when I was a little bit younger. I, I, I knew Neil personally, and I always got a kick out of him because he was way the hell out there, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I had a master's degree, and I was always sort of more conservative, and I studied logic, and I spent a lot of time in uh, school, you know, so I was the only guy that didn't drop out, <laughs> and I loved Neil, Neil was like one of these guys that knew everything and everybody, you know. Well, for you... You set an example for me, for sure. Well, I mean, you find yourself, I mean, with just with what you mentioned with the titles just now, uh, you go from the dead book... Uh, which chronicles uh, the Grateful Dead when they were known as the Warlocks, if I remember correctly. Right. And, and, and let, let me just share with the audience, because you got a hoot out of it. I'm glad you did it, that you weren't angry with me, but I got a bigger hoot out of it. I get it all the time. But yeah, we were, yeah, I mean, we were just kicking it around. And then you said, well, I wrote that. I was like, you wrote that? Uh, it, you said it was some, by some guy named Harrington. Hamilton, I thought Hamilton, it was. Hamilton, yeah. But yeah. I know it was an H word. Well, but it's cool because I have a second life, a third life, and a fourth life. You do, you know, yeah. like a cat. And that's interesting, too, because uh, Cassidy's unfinished biography was known as what was going to be, well, he wrote the first third, but he didn't write the second or the third third. Right, right, exactly. But, you, uh, but just what you mentioned, and... Um, I just want to say that I do remember that book very well. I, I read it probably back in 74, uh -huh. never saw it nor touched it again. So that's that was working on memory. And, um, right. But you know what was interesting also, uh, and that had not been that done, done that much, I guess, at, at that time, is that vinyl knockout record in the back, which is one of uh, Cassidy's raps, is right. it not? Yeah. And what's yeah, kind of... You rapping at the uh, Straight Theater on 8th Street in 68, uh, just before he died. Now, what's kind of uh, bittersweet about that is that he was getting heckled by what would become yeah. the new surfer crowd, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. They, they were they were sort of, by that time, the 68, the hippie scene was over by 68, and uh, the new audience was like, who's that old drunk here? Let's hear some rock and roll, you know. Or, Show me your tits, Lily, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And, and they didn't know who he was. They had no reverence for him whatsoever. But they were young kids, and they were, he forgave them. Well, and he wasn't uh, around much longer after that, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah. Um, but again, now you, you, you started with the dead book back in the 60s, and now we're, you're talking about something that took place very recently. 
Uh, and of course, with a personage in the rock world that um, probably a lot of our listeners are very familiar with, more so than even I. Um, and there's always been a speculation around um, his demise. Uh, Kurt Cobain? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, d- did you not have some kind of um, propinquity with him? I. Uh- well, yeah, he's my son-in-law. There you go. I'm <laughs> I never met him. <laughs> my daughter was very upset that she found out I was writing a book about that situation because she spread the rumor that I shouldn't be allowed to write the book because I never met him. And I told her, hey, I'm writing the book about Ben Franklin. I never met him. So, I mean, you don't have to know somebody no. to write a book about them. And it depends on how much scholastic aptitude you have, you know. I can always see the great thing about my situation and the reason I'm overjoyed with the way my life went, in spite of the fact that I'm in an aged pain at this stage of my life, is that, you know, I've got this diversity of candy counters to go to. You know, I mean, I could pick from, choose like a Chinese menu, one from column A, one from column B. And have a full meal here. You know, I can keep writing for the rest of my life and never get bored. Well, then let me ask you this because you're probably this one. Oh, I'm sorry. The one thing is, sure. is, is that the reason I say that is because the the way I write, it's really all about sociology and anthropology. Mm-hmm. All of it is the same. People think, well, it's very diverse, but if you read the medieval studies book, it's about anthropology, reconstructing uh, medieval anthropology and archaeology and that kind of stuff. So it's all there. So go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I I just feel that you know that that's pretty much what's going to be looked at, uh, or the way it's going to be looked at, uh, what we're dealing with now. I mean, it's anthropological, right. it's sociological. But I'll ask you this because I guess I guess I'm one who. Um, falls prey to the attitude that yesterday was great and what's going on today sucks. But you're in a situation now where, you know, you've been around a bit longer than I, very much more involved in what was going on at the time and even now. Uh, what do you, how do you feel when you look back across the decades? I mean, have, quote, have things gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Have they kind of just stayed the same but changed form? Well, we won the revolution, then it got boring, so we lost it. <laughs> Which ones would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Uh, the Haight Ashbury one, for example. Yeah. It was so easy. We thought it was going to be really terrifying and hard to do, and we sort of overthrew the the system. You know, rage against the machine. That was really cool. And then we got bored, and people started taking hard drugs, and we took too much acid. See, I was always opposed to taking LSD for recreational purposes because it was always a psychiatric drug. It was designed for that. It was originally discovered by accident, true, but it certainly proved to be very effective against uh, uh, alcoholism and several other good psychiatric solid uses. And then uh, Owsley came in and started spreading it out on the back of a truck, mm-hmm. and it became a hayride, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was like one of the downfalls of the political side of the revolution, quote-unquote, the 60s. Then, as time went on, the after-effects of the Vietnam War went on for way into the 80s, and uh, probably still resonates, and uh, you still have another war, which, you know, I don't know how Bush got elected, but... You know, by the way, I've been to the grassy knoll. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, there, I wanted to say that every night, roughly every night, especially during the October period, a whole cloud of blackbirds descends at sunset on Dealey Plaza. And I just sat there and watched these birds come down one night, and I just started crying. You know, and uh, it's roughly at that point that I realized that there wasn't much... I could do as a street organizer and that I'd better spend the rest of my life doing the writing, you know, Uh because the books are going to be more effective if they get out. And then suddenly I decided, okay, I'll be a good writer. I'll be a better writer. (laughs) You want to hear this? Talk about falling over your own feet. I I decided I'm going to be the best writer in the world. (laughs) So I went to England and I studied with the greatest writers in the world who were alive at the time. Dame Frances Yates, she thought I was a kick, took me under her wing and showed me all this stuff. And earlier I had spent a lot of time with Nelson Algren, who wrote The Man with the Golden Arm and stuff like that. 
And they all taught me like the ins and outs and stuff. And I had an agent who was ripping me off at the time. And so to make a long story short, I really did become a better writer, much better writer, but it's got to be so so hard to read, you damn near have to have a master's degree to start reading the books. So it became like, uh oh, I better get married get a ranch and live in the country for a while. You know, that's mm -hmm. sort of what happened to my life. Um, I want to answer your question. Well, you're going through a timeline. I, I'm, I want you to pick it up. If I could address just what you had said about Dealey Plaza real quick. Yeah, sure. I, I think you'd appreciate this. Um, I got thrown out of Mexico in 1973, <laughs> and um, I took a, a bus from Laredo, the Trace Estrellas, that dumped me off in... Um, in Dallas. Now, I, I was kind of road weary, and you know, yeah. back in those days, you know, plane fare wasn't a big deal, so I figured I'd fly home and call it a day. And home was New Jersey. Yeah. All right. So what I had to do is I had to get from the uh, bus station to I-35 to hitch up to um, Dallas Airport, which was Lubbock at the time. Right. Now, I I knew I was walking in the right direction, and what was interesting is that this was at about four o'clock in the morning. It was very right. ghostly and very quiet, actually a great atmosphere. And as I started to get closer to the to that trident of streets, Elmate was Elmate and Commerce. Right. I could see by the architecture of the buildings that I must be getting closer to Dealey Plaza because things started to look like the book depository, if you know right. what I mean. Okay. Uh, and I got there. I had the whole place to myself. I went out into the street following the path that Kennedy's uh, a vehicle went down. Right. And again, nobody was bothering me. No cars were coming. And I stood in the street and I looked back over my shoulder at the depository, uh, was at the sixth floor window or whatever, yeah. and I said, no way. And yeah, yeah. I, it's, yeah, exactly. Anybody that has a brain in their head who goes down there and actually sees, and oh, I guess you, if you know anything about firearms, if you had a gun when you were a kid mm -hmm. or even a BB gun, you know about trajectories and how bullets fall and stuff. And you can see the distances. A man like a Carcano 6.5 millimeter cannot go that distance at that velocity. Period. It's not high velocity, right? Yeah, I mean it was. It would have had to. It had to be a very high velocity 221 or 222 fireball is what I think it was, and uh, caliber, and uh, you know, small enough to pack in a pistol shape, but being actually a rifle. And uh, yeah, I stood right at the fence picket. There's a still picket fence missing. There's still one picket missing out of that fence, or there was then anyway. This was say 20 years ago. But um, yeah, no, that's that's the experience. I think everybody who ever thought Kennedy was a martyr should go down there and hang out mm -hmm. and uh, just see that because the the trajectories of the geometry, it just doesn't work. Uh, one quick question, what's been sure. lost in time is the fact that it was reported, the rifle was reported to have been a Mauser. Could the Mauser have done it? Could the Mauser have been one of the, the rifles in that? Um... Well, it was a Mauser action, but a Menlicher Carcano was an Italian mm -hmm. Mauser action. It was one of the most mediocre rifles on the planet Earth. Okay. It was designed, and 6.5 is a blunt nose bullet. They didn't make any extra bullets for it. You'd have to load your own bullets and have specific uh, uh, bullets for it. But they came, the bullet that they came up with, especially this, the bullet that was spent, the one that was untouched, you know, the pristine bullet, mm -hmm. that thing was from a manager. There's no doubt about it. And it, you, if you look at the, how round the nose is and everything, it can't have that trajectory. Okay. Yeah, they're I don't right. want to get into the forensics, but trust no. me, man, I know a lot about forensics. And the only reason I bring that up is because I had just gotten done uh, watching a five-part series uh, that have... Uh, uh, clips from the, the major news networks, the alphabet networks, where yeah. that's discussed and that somewhat gets lost in time now. You know, it just nothing else is said about a second rifle in the depository, but that, that's good enough. And I appreciate you addressing that. But well, we were dummy. You know, clearly yeah. the guy was shot from someplace else. Yeah. The actual lethal, lethal shot was done by an expert marksman. There's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, well, thank you for addressing that, too. And, and, and with getting back from the digression, you were, we were talking more or less about a timeline, because I'd asked you, you know... Well, the, it's not a digression, because when Kennedy was assassinated, yeah. especially the first Kennedy, but then when the second Kennedy and Martin Luther King were all assassinated, I mean, it became so patently apparent to everybody in my generation, everybody that I knew, everybody at the Grateful Dead office, everybody that hung out with us, that, uh, oh, shit, this is a revolution, let's go. You know, and we just went, you know, Paul Cantor went out and bought a box of hand grenades. And uh, seriously, uh, there were people with flamethrowers in their basements. 
Uh, I went to a meeting once in, uh, I won't say who, but a very famous rock star who had a plan on his wall in his den which showed who would man what barricades in Golden Gate Park. Uh, during the 67, 66, you know, uh, just after uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. No, 68, I guess it was. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, you know, I wasn't as cerebrally developed or um, chronologically. Who was I, man? This, I'm 68 now, and I managed to keep my head together over the years, but we didn't know what we were doing in those days. Well, you know, it was just instinctive reactions. Well, well you know... I, um, I, you got 11 years on me, but the thing is, yes, I mean, you were an adult, I mean, and your cohort could take action. Um, I'm, like in high school, not figuring all this out, and very willing, if you will, to just keep in my world of football, baseball, and chasing skirts. But, sure. you know, that you know, obviously it never left you that here people like myself, you know, have watched, what, four assassinations in the span of about four years. Oh, yeah. And somehow you make sense of this and that America is normal. And, of course, it's not. But let me ask you, I mean, did, and of course, we had that nasty Chicago convention riot. Yeah, yeah, right. And then, of course, Ruben you... Ruben and those guys, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, when, it, when you know, like a friend of mine said, he was uh, going cross-country with his family for a trip, and they stopped in a, a motel. He flips the TV on. He's watching these guys getting their heads kicked in. He's thinking it's Czechoslovakia. Uh, Czechoslovakia. Exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's Chicago. Oh, it was Chicago. Uh, exactly. No, and, sure. Hate Ash Street. They didn't show much on the, the riot on Hate Street, but uh, there was this thing called Death of Hippie, where they were marching up. The diggers were marching up and down Hate Street with a coffin and uh, music blaring in the background, blowing trumpets in New Orleans style. And uh, the cops didn't like it, so they started banging heads there, too. And it started got to quite a bit of a riot. And there's the famous Berkeley riots where they overturned a couple of CH uh, California Highway Patrol cars. So, you know, yeah, that was going on then. There's no doubt about it. There was some, uh, and then there was a Fillmore riots where the African-American community decided to blow up. Uh, all in one day, and so that was, you know, right before I could tell you the one distinctive poetic reality of that that sticks in my head the most was that growing up in San Francisco, prior to the 68 riots, street riots and stuff, and the assassination of Martin Luther King, everybody in San Francisco pretty much, not 100%, but pretty much left their doors open. They didn't have key latches, like in Ireland, where they leave the, the keys in the door and latch, you know. And after that, just the locksmiths made a billion. Everybody locked up. Um, Everybody shut up the doors. That was, it was a very, very interesting transition. And so people can uh, try to figure this out for themselves also, and that is uh, you pretty much uh, grew up and spent a great deal of time in and around the Bay Area, right? Oh, yeah. All right, and that, of course, that puts you in obviously one of the hotbeds of activity. Well, I was born the... in Monterey, California, so I had a very serene childhood, but I grew up in places like Hayward, San Leandro, uh, San Francisco, you know, mm -hmm. and, and partially in San Mateo County. Well, let me, here's where I wanted to ask you, too. I mean, when you see when people yell uh, all about police states and the Patriot community gets all worked up about uh, uh, police states and the uh, coming martial law and such. But, you know, things were much worse as far as I remember uh, between 64 and 70. I mean, and I'm, this is what I'm asking you. It almost seemed like the government turned the, the bulldogs loose on, um, on the movement, uh, whatever version it was, to make sure that this never happened again. Did, did you and, and your colleagues feel that you were under assault? Uh, well, we made some mistakes, yes. But I don't, I, I think that we were willing to say bring it on, you know, uh, because we knew by the size of the groups that we could call up with one phone call. We knew, we, yeah, we, okay, let me put it this way. I, I don't say this very often, but I'm going to give you an exclusive. We had an actual think tank. Amongst yourselves. It was actual. It wasn't just a pseudo-think tank. It was a real think tank. We sat down and played the world game. We had people from Illinois, from the University of you know, Champaign-Urbana on our team. We had people, this is before computers, on the phone. We had, you know, we were playing the world game at that point on a, on a table in the office with 
markers and cars and uh, little red flags and stuff like that. You know, I think one of the things that screwed us up the most was that <clears throat> it's like climbing a mountain and you're always looking for a handhold. You don't want your enemy to get a hold of your handholds or climb up the mountain behind you. And we did, that's our mistake. We did that. We told them, we signaled what we were going to do. We said, come on, let's do it. And we were young kids and we challenged them to a fight and they brought the fight to us. Uh, that was, pardon me, that was one of the main mistakes looking back on it. Uh, and you have your Woodstock Nation, just a show of force, boom, complete show of force. Uh, you have uh, spontaneous uh, show-ups of uh, 10,000 people overnight. Nobody knows where they came from. And then dispersion. Nobody knows where they went. Just like that. That scares the crap out of people, out of this, the, you know, the cops and the uh, authorities. They were totally disorganized. And the only reason we made any progress at all in those days uh, was because we, we were more organized than they were. And we were angry. They weren't. They were just sort of passive. All oh, these hippies will never get us, you know, never hurt us, blah, 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 attitude. And we got them. And out of that came, and I, I'm not saying this is from me, but out of that came spontaneous reactions like Weather Underground, Patty Hearst, blah, blah, blah. So then there was also these counter reactions like the fake Simunis Liberation Army, which was a CIA front group, you know, and several other things like that, which were actually operating in the underground and had infiltrated. And I remember, mainly because, well, I can say this now because Jerry's dead, but Garcia would do stuff like get us into trouble, by, because, see, some of the Grateful Dead were just far-out radicals, Jeffersonian liberals, you know, mm -hmm. and then some of them were communists. And some of them were anarchists, see? And Garcia was a card-carrying member of the American Communist Party. And so was Bobby Peterson, the poet. You know, Bob Peterson. He wrote Loose Potato Caboose and Alligator and those songs. Anyway, those guys used to, you know, really fan the flames, I think, in an inappropriate manner, such as, for example, doing a benefit for the Black Panthers and then dosing everybody on acid at the benefit. So after that, everybody, whether you were a manager or just some guy hanging out, were on the FBI shit list. Yeah. You know? And so we used to send lunches over to coffee over to the guys in the car across the street because they were these guys in seersucker suits sitting in a Buick across the street. That was the FBI, and every one of us had a record after that. Mm -hmm. Everybody, everybody got watched. You know, people that were just... Vendors, people that came to the house to bring, people that came to the office to to, to bring to fix the Xerox machine, guys, on the list, you know. Well, the the revolution you talk about, or the fight you were willing to, to take on, uh, was not going to be one of ideology, was it? I mean, did you guys have hardware? Or <laughs> well, there was hardware. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, okay, yes and no. How's that for an answer? Okay. Uh, it was one of ideology, absolutely. But the ideology was just shit plain anger. Just absolutely 26-year-old, holy Christ, let's go get me. What are we going to do? Fear and anger mixed, you know. Uh, that was the ideology. And then there was all these other parsimonious uh, aspects of it, uh, you know, breaking it down into uh, different sects and groups and working for Barbara Boxer and working for McGovern and then working for uh, getting the box of grenades for somebody. <laughs> and I saw him. I was a box of hand grenades in Paul Kantner's basement. He doesn't mind me talking. I ask him about it. And there, there were other things, you know, uh, out there that were uh, pretty heavy. And uh, we were scared, but we were willing to do it. Was there any kind of solidarity with the Panthers at that time? Oh, you know. <laughs> well, now you're asking me an individual question. I I personally never thought the Panthers had much going for them except some love for their own people, naturally. But uh, as far as uh, them having any kind of sense of uh, overall true non-Marxist, well, see, they were Marxist, more or less Marxist, uh, infiltrated so much so that 
and I think they were ineffective. And so we did this benefit for Huey, for, for the Panthers, and Huey took the money up to Tahoe and gambled it. But he won. <laughs> and he brought the money back. So, you know, I mean, it's just, Huey's like uh, one of those guys that's just legendary people, you know. Uh, Garcia met him on an airplane. They got to be buddies, and they did a benefit for him. And he took the money up to Tahoe, won, won a bunch of money back and playing craps. And I don't know. It's just one of those crazy stories you hear. Uh, and uh, so he was willing to, to take that kind of chance with his people's money. Whether or not he won or not isn't, isn't as relevant. It's humorous, but it isn't relevant. The fact is that he did it. And to me, it was playing fast and loose with some hard-earned, you know, some hard-earned money that people went out of their way to get for him. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's what I think about that. All right. One other French group I have to ask you about at that time too, and that would be the Hell's Angels. Would they have any help? <laughs> I love those guys. They're totally cool. I mean, they're. What do you want me to say about the HA? I mean, they're black, the red, and white are out there. Okay, and they're still around. Okay, mm -hmm. and they'll always be around as long as Sonny, especially as long as Sonny's alive, and Sonny's still alive. Believe it or not, he's not doing too well, but he's still very much Sonny Barger. Barger, yeah, mm -hmm. right. And uh, I was sort of glad they beat the crap out of uh, Thompson writers, huh? <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Thompson. He was way over his head. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. And uh, you know he. The Angels were, as you know, formed out of the Second World War. Those guys came out of the Second World War. And then the second generation and so forth came out of the Korean War. But uh, as far as their attitude, and I've studied them pretty carefully, and they do stuff like they have some liaison with the, with the local authorities and with the state-level authorities. And uh, there was a big uh, fire big fire and explosion inside a tunnel between Walnut Creek and Berkeley. <clears throat> and there was two HA guys caught in there and died. And uh, what happened was the um, the boys found out about their own guys being hurt before anybody on the TV or radio reported it. And so they went down and got their own guys at the CHP, let them go in and get their own guys. Uh, we're almost at the uh, bottom of the hour. Okay. Uh, and we're talking with Hank Harrison. Uh, Hank, listen, with the titles that you have available, uh, how can people uh, find out about them and perhaps purchase them? Do you like to do it off your website, or how do you handle that? Well, anybody that wants to contact me can write it to Hank at hankharrison.com. Okay. So that, that, you know, and my website is www.hankharrison.com. Right. Okay. And, and are, are you saying then that you handle um, the sales yourself? No, I, I can, when they go to the website, they'll get directed to where okay. to get the stuff and how to get the stuff. Okay. And, and it's, uh, you know, some of the stuff's on Amazon. Some of the stuff is just available on a CD only okay. format. And uh, some of it, if they just want to write me a letter and say, well, you're full of shit or whatever, that's okay, too. I reserve the right to not answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, getting back, if you would, uh, to, um, again, is this timeline that we kind of went through. Um, and my saying that, you know, it looked like the youth of America or the young people of America or a certain generation was definitely under assault, I mean, physically. Um, let me ask you also, um, at that time, uh, was, was Stanford Research Institute involved with picking anybody's brains or uh, trying to analyze anything? Uh, SRI is pretty much in the dark. <laughs> I don't know what they do. Uh, and they were a front group for Sanford, I guess. I don't know. No, I, they they did distant viewing, and they were doing hypnotic trance states uh, studies and stuff at the time, but uh, they were way behind the trend. Uh, and I don't know if there's any linkage here, and you're telling me kind of no, but I've always wondered about that. Uh, well, Kesey got his right. LSD and that kind of thing from uh, the medical uh, research grants. But not to SRI that I know of. All right, I, I was going to. That's where I was. Campus. Yeah, I was wondering with Kesey being there, and of course going to Stanford at the time, and with SRI there. Your Stanford Research Institute is just uses the name Stanford. They have nothing, nothing to do with Stanford okay. University per se. 
Not directly, anyway. Right, now, talking about the acid, this is something I've wondered out, uh, about out loud. Yeah. And that was, did, did that just ha organically happen to be discovered and sprang up? Or do you or do you believe that was some kind of plant? I mean, some would affix it to no, the military. Genuine, no, I, no, he was working with Hoffman, who just died recently, mm -hmm. you know, uh, was working on a uh, asthma and migraine headache cure. He was working with ergotamine tartrate because it's been known to cure migraine headaches since Roman times or before. So he knew that, and he was working with refining ergotamine tartrate, and he got some of it on himself, and that's how he started hallucinating. After that, it got to be a psychiatric drug, and it was approved as a psychiatric drug. And it, had it stayed at that level, I think things would be a lot different today. I really do. But because people started dropping large amounts of drugs all up to the current ecstasy raves, which I'm very much opposed to, uh, you can't just a totally hedonistic uh, rave every Saturday night and not uh, suffer some mal... Uh, something ugly could happen, you know. So I personally, uh, one of the things that people should know about me is I was the first person to ever bring anybody down off a bad acid trip on a telephone in the human, for the whole human race. <laughs> and I invented this thing called LSD Rescue Intervention Counseling. And I was on the board of directors of the Heat-Ashbury Clinic until I found out what a bunch of uh, con men they were. So I dropped out of that, too. But at the time, I was bringing people down about ten, five or six people a day, and I was training people to uh, sit with people while they came down off their acid trips and stuff. If people were just taking too much, you know, a lot of diabetics taking acid, causing extreme hypoconditions, hypoglycemic conditions, and you know, and that was when I was 26. And the grant, believe it or not, the debt gave me some money to do that grant. And I got other grants from uh, National Institute of Mental Health and several other groups, Lutheran Council and stuff like that. And we did research on it and published it. That was my first book, actually. Dead, pardon me, it was called Head, the Drug User in America. It was the first book. And it made the New York Times, and not the bestseller list, but it got mentioned in Time Magazine and Newsweek, et cetera. But then... Uh, I had some, uh, I lost my daughter in a very vicious situation because I was managing a rock band. They took my kid away from me, and that became Courtney Love. Mm -hmm. You still there? Yeah, I am. And so when I lost Courtney, I started going to mental uh, fatigue, and I decided to uh, go to a Zen monastery for a while in Tassajara. And uh then after that, Martin Luther King was assassinated, so... I got depressed, and uh, I never went back to uh, very much uh, doing anything to uh, the LSD rescue anymore. Uh, other people still do it, so. I just want to aside, and that is uh, probably from the t time you mentioned, uh, probably 20 minutes ago, that your son-in-law was Kurt Cobain. People out there are going, then that must mean you have a daughter who is... Courtney Love. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, her real name was Courtney Michelle Harrison. Mm-hmm. Anybody that does a little research will find that out. And um, uh, I want to go into that if we can a little bit later in the hour. Sure. All right. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, who in the world was cooking that stuff at that time, LSD? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but everybody knows the names, so, you know, I'm going to let you fill them in for yourself. But the bear was a protege of Sasha. Sasha, the bear, get the joke, huh? Uh -huh. Everybody. <laughs> Uh, right out of Prokofiev, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look up Sasha, he's a very, very famous, very, 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 probably the most famous psychedelic biochemist who's still alive. Uh, and he taught the bear how to do it, but actually he taught the bear's girlfriend how to do it. And her name was Melissa, and Melissa is the daughter of a very, very large, or one of the daughters of a very large family uh, with a very famous manufacturing name for a fertilizer company. I'll tell you what that is either because I don't want to get sued, but 
Well, I don't want to keep Owsley rampaging against me, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the bear, who he is, but, you know, the rest of the situation, I'm just going to let that lie. But the point is that they all learned how to do it, and they started whipping it up. And uh, what they did, though, they perfected it. wasn't so much the technique of the chemistry, although that was very, very complicated. It was how they did it. They used to get this portable lab in a truck. And they would pull up to a garage, somebody's garage pre-designated, and they would have it all ready to go. They would whip it up and pull the truck out. Within 24 hours, they'd have so they could get busted with the actual stuff. That's how they made so much of it. A a cohort of mine went to Rutgers University in Jersey. Yeah. A pretty bright guy, and I I had a laugh when he recounted um, an experiment that they were doing that the professor was not aware of, and that is trying to grow um, LSD on a slice of wheat bread. And this, this, of course, this went on for <laughs> this went on for quite some time. And they came down to the moment where they were going to eat it, and either they were going to get killed from wheat rust, or they were going to have a very pleasant experience. And they just didn't want to roll the dice. Extremely unpleasant. It's uh, there's several medieval accounts of uh, they think the Tarantella probably the dance the Tarantella probably came from that uh, from uh, That's old from uh, a rye wart. Yeah. Uh, the plant's so black, it's a sort of a black uh, tartar that forms on the rye plant, and uh, ergotamine fungus is not good for you in its raw form, please believe me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they, they did not take the uh, one step beyond. So. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> No, they just said that's it, and they just chucked it and let it go with that. But, I mean, you know, just the... Well, it's sort of like smoking banana peels, you know, <laughs> or taking morning glory seeds. <clears throat> yeah, it's all there. Uh, now, you know, the last time I ever really encountered anybody who, who was still uh, dropping ass, it was probably, the last I can think of was like 75 or 76, and then all of a sudden it just seemed to just disappear, and I don't know that's because... Uh, Ecstasy. Even that early, huh? Ecstasy came in, and other things came in. I'm also... I, I still know a few people that are hoarding a couple of hits. Uh, the one thing I will say, it seems that when... Uh, Obviously, some of us became yuppies and such. Uh, it started families and everything. That that gave that seemed like it gave way. It might have been like a, a age thing. But then, unfortunately, what seemed to fill the vacuum for a lot of people, and which was really destructive, was um, cocaine. Coke became very destructive. Heroin to kill off the coke rush. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it became a completely self-indulgent. I mean, the whole idea of the hippie commune, the extended universal commune, uh, sociological uh, wave thing died out, and it became a very selfish thing, and the drug of choice for any selfish person is always going to be coke, because it makes you feel so good about how good you are, Mm -hmm. and it's a lie, you know. such and, right. and kept 
just voluminous notes. And he looked at me and he goes, no one will ever understand. And I can never share what a successful experiment this has been. And, of course, that, you know, what they had to do was find guys who were crooked, uh, PSCNG guys, you know, electric and gas who would circumvent the uh, meter. Oh, sure. Uh, you, you remember the whole deal, the headlights up in the uh, the attic. And, oh, well, it, now we have a solar panel, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, well, you know, a solar panel in the backyard, you got it. But when you were talking about uh, the same thing, I guess, that you did, and that is, I, I guess you messed, you did hybridization as well, didn't you? I didn't work on it as much, but yeah, I, I, I knew what I was doing. I was into a thing called what I call marijuana bonsai, which is like the actual bonsai making... I did the opposite. Everybody's telling me, let's make the plants big. I said, no, let's make the plants small. You know, and so I had my, my record is eight generations on one stem, one, yeah. one root. Mm -hmm. Eight grows on one root. And that's when the yeah. dog's got it. And, and also, and maybe you want to chime in on this if you've had information to this effect. The reason he did this, he got involved with some Westies, um, you know, who are Irish wise guys from Manhattan. Oh, Manhat I know who the Westies are. All right, okay, good. A, a lot of people don't know that name. but Oh, yeah, sure, I'm Irish. There you go. Spent two years in Ireland. Yeah, I know the Westies. Well, actually, some of these Westies also were supplying, um, I guess, uh, through um, co uh, cohorts in, in Boston, uh, right. firearms for the IRA that would go out through sure. there. Absolutely. And But these guys also now, and I, please react to this, I mean, if, if you're aware of the situation, too, because a lot of people think it's 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 uh, blowing hot air. But what happened was um, the reason they decided to do this attic experiment was because they were having trouble getting um, supplies that had been provided for them by the U.S. military, and they would drive vans down to Florida and get loaded by military. Uh, in a, abandoned airports down, uh, airstrips down here in Florida, and then they just drive it back, and that dried up because of Iran Contragate. So I mean, here's a situation where people talk. You mean the Westies were. You mean the Westies? They were stuff from the Florida uh, uh, National Guard. Yeah, no. Or? Oh no. That, I mean, they were getting it from from the army, but they were the, the, the handoff place until it got too hot would be abandoned airstrips, one not too far away from me down here. Right on. Yeah. Sure. So you're aware of that also. Well, it's a National Guard. There's leaks. There's always leaks in the uh, in the system. Yeah, you, you know, people they pay a soldier like eighty bucks a month. When you, the guy can make eighty bucks an hour, a minute selling uh, guns that are just sitting there, haven't been inventoried for twenty years, uh, and you know, mm -hmm. AR-15s and Colts, uh, Colt AR-15s mostly was the. Uh, gun of choice for uh, the IRA and uh, I happened to be in Ireland in, in uh, 79, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82 when the boys were on the blanket at the H block if you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. The H block? Good. Blockesh prison, the guys that starved themselves, the hunger strikers. Yep. Yeah. And that was what you know, the Westies were sending it to. I mean, yeah, that was a heavy time, man. Yeah, it was. Yeah. If you live in Ireland long enough, you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to get what the thing is about. It's not about Catholic Protestant, although that's what they always tell you. They throw that it's more. It's very much more about how the English are a bunch of jerks and are we're trying to really suppress this nation of people that are so different from the English that... Uh, you might as well be the difference between African American and American Indian differences. You know that different, and uh, they don't like each other. No, um, it's economics, isn't it? Huh? It's economics, isn't it? Well, they, well, let me give you one small example that I ran into as a book publisher in Ireland. In order to get a book published in Ireland, you had to go through a British publisher. You could not publish out of Ireland directly. Mm. You had to go through a British publisher first and distributor right. first. That was the, by treaty, and that treaty was forced on the Irish in modern times. So, you know, it, it's just medieval. And so I said, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to go uh, and sell these direct, I'm going to publish over here and sell them directly to the Yanks, because the Yanks are interested in getting books about Ireland. You couldn't sell a book to the American reading population without going through England first. Mm. And that's been that way since way before Wild West times, like before the Civil War here. You know, it's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it, I don't want to get into that. I mean, that's, you want know, to talk about conspiracy theories, uh, but... 
Well, it's ironic we're bringing this up only because on this very day that we're doing this recording, and that is June 12th, yeah. uh, the voting is underway in Ireland right now to see whether or not they can resist being assimilated into the European Union. Um, they've been doing very well separate from it. It'll be interesting to find out whether their uh, independent streak will... Uh, um, what, what do you mean? Dublin? No, I mean, the whole of Ireland is voting as to whether they want to be part. But the, not, not the top count, not, not Ulster. Ulster, too? Well, Ulster is British, is it not? Yeah. No, just just Ireland. But the Ulster is British, but it's on the island. Right, it's... right. But they're not, apparently, there's a gentleman by the name of Liam who uh, has been on the show and also is going to come back. He's been sending me emails as to what's been going on with TV campaigns and such. He uh -huh. lives in Northern Ireland, but he said it's, this is just Ireland uh, proper. Ireland. Yeah. The double government. If that's, yeah, the double, that's exactly The double right. government. The double right. government wants to be in the Euro market more than anything in the world. What else be? The Irish, the Irish people, the Dublin people, the Cork people, people from Leinster, Munster, they want to be in the Euro market. They already have the Euro. They've switched over to the Euro years ago. They got rid of the punt, which is the pound. Um, and the, the Euro and the pound, ironically, are the same price now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I lived there. I had a house there for years. Well... Um, you, you're right, and, and probably it will happen. Um, Good. I mean, that's what they want. I mean, they say they, some of them say they don't want it. Well, where it's the old story, though, too, Hank, whether the people don't want it and the government does, so guess who wins out in the end? Well, the people do want it, though. I mean, okay. the, the intellectuals, the really, the really educated Irish know what they're doing. I mean, it's the, uh, you get these, you get these uh, I don't want to say anything offensive, but you get people that aren't that educated in Ireland, too, just like anywhere else. It's not just a land of poets and saints. You know, there are other people there. <laughs> but uh, the Catholic, let me give you an idea about the church and how suppressive the church could be. There was a Polaroid uh, factory that was built in Kildare. And this was supposed to hire another 180, 200 people, which would have, maybe 300 people, but it would change the whole economic complexion of Kildare County, which is south of Dublin, about 35 miles. And it's a gorgeous plant, gorgeous plant. And one of the janitors, one of the guys, one of the Irish guys was there, was hired as a janitor. And he was making more money than the bishop. So they shut the plant down. <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> uh, he was driving a nicer car than the <laughs> cardinal or the bishop. It was a bishop. So, I, you know, yep. I'm, an ag I'm, a, I'm a Buddhist, so, hey, you can imagine how I didn't say much when I was over there. Um, but, if we could fast forward to uh, Scotland. Listen, let me say one thing. Oh, sure. Scotland's the country that's really making it. Scotland's going to secede from England real soon. It has already, actually. It has its own parliament. And the next one after that is Wales, and then all the Celtic countries are going to fall to their own countryhood. You know, they're going to become their own nations, and England's going to be sitting there with no empire. Well, that's pretty radical. That takes place. I can't imagine it being allowed, you know. But huh? I, well, I mean, I, I, I would think it's going to try to be suppressed very heavily, but um, you feel that's going to... It's a Celtic language. It's all about speaking Irish and Welsh and, yeah. and Scottish. But it's the ancient Celtic world, man, coming out back to life. Yeah. Trust me. Well, it's happened all across Europe. I mean, look at it, what's taking place in the former Yugoslavia, and, and it's like going back to a pre-World War One map, or even further. Uh-huh. Um, if we can finish off the uh, the hour uh, sure. the way we began, and that is with reference to the book you're writing, Love Kills, the Assassination of Kurt Cobain. Right. Folks now know that he's your son-in-law and that his wife uh, is your daughter. Right. Um, what kind of situation did that put you in, and are you under any kind of, say, uh, uh, legal uh, uh, threat? Legal, but it sure hurts sometimes. But, you know, when you open a book with the following line, you're going to get in trouble. Everything you need to know about the assassination of Kurt Cobain is contained in this book. That's the opening line of the book, okay? Mm -hmm. Does that make you want to read it? Well, that's, that's I mean, that's just... I didn't draw any conclusions in the book. See, the, the book doesn't come to any conclusions at all. You read it, you get it. 
but you don't know where you got it. It's in the third chapter, the ninth chapter, the twenty-second chapter. See what I'm saying? Uh -huh. And you get if you don't have a brain on your head, then you don't get it. You get, when you read this book, not only do you have to pay the price of admission, you got to have a brain. Because this isn't some kind of fan book. See, every book that was ever written on Cobain has gone through Courtney's supervision and approval. So they naturally come up with this bad, rapid Cobain, painting him out to be an idiot, painting him out to be a, a weak sister and all. He wasn't. He wasn't at all. He was a, he was a very, very charismatic, very uh, knew-what-he-was-doing kind of guy. And he... He was inspired, and, and, and I, I never got to meet him, but I started to study him and study his music and stuff, and I didn't like his music at first, and I started realizing what it was all about, and that inspired me to write the book. See, I was originally writing a book about, what, what, I started writing the book when Courtney had the baby, when they had the baby, see, because it was my grandchild, and I naively assumed that they were going to pull up in the driveway with a big white limo any day and show the baby to Grandpa, right? All right didn't happen and I realized why it turned out she was not in the slightest bit interested in him being a rock star she was only interested in her being a bigger rock star than anybody and so anything she would do to get to her level of uh, success she was going to do and that's I have several pages, well, I'd say about 15 pages of handwritten documents by her stating exactly that point, that she didn't care who she killed or who she knocked down or who she put, you know, down as long as she got to be the big the big rock star. So that's what she wanted to do. She achieved that goal. And after she achieved that goal, she found that it was quite boring. So now she's out there doing drugs. Okay. So I don't have there's no great love anymore uh, for her they took her away from me years ago and uh, uh, they spoiled her and ruined her and then they sent her into juvenile see the thing happened was that after they took her away from me they they started shrinking her head they found out they couldn't shrink her head because it was me and the more I remind the more she reminded them of me that is just the wife and the second husband and the third husband and the fourth husband fifth husband the more they brought it out, took it out on Courtney. So that finally, Courtney started acting up, and they sent her to a juvenile hall, and they left her there for years in foster homes and stuff. And uh, the ex-wife, Linda, is uh, wrote her own book and tried to, you know, fluff over her own karma. Uh, and you can't blame this child for being a genius because her grandmother... On her mother's side, her mother's mother is a Nobel is probably is a Pulitzer Prize winner. And that Fox, okay. Paula Fox, and you can look her up on Google, and you'll see what that's all about. Okay. Paula Fox, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, Jesus, if I could write that way, I'd just beyond good as a writer. You know, genius. So you can see where Courtney got some of this brain power, you know. So I wouldn't put anything past her. Trouble was, she was so sociologically screwed up and so familiarly fractured uh, over the centuries, you know, that she had to go through up in Oregon that she just she just couldn't make it, and then she turned into this kind of L.A. heroin monster. And so, you know, the whole story's in the book. You know, but it isn't just about her. It's about her whole generation and what they're willing to tolerate, you know, go for it. Riot Girls, G-R-R-R-R-R-L-S, you know that? But that is? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these are the rebellious ladies that hate their fathers. So I became like the hated one for a long time. And now suddenly I'm getting all these phone calls and emails from people saying, whoa, we see what you mean now. You know, now I've got my own kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So once you have a couple of kids, you start realizing, oh, geez, what did Hank go through? <clears throat> so that I'm not. There's nothing in the book that makes anybody feel sorry for me personally, but um, there's a lot in the book about Cobain uh, and how he tried to become an independent and move away. And as soon as his contracts were expired with Geffen, David Geffen, DGC Records, he then uh, decided he wanted to go out on his own. And he put down $12 million for a Lollapalooza because he didn't want the Marines to be recruiting at his gigs. 
And I love the guy for that. See, because it was a rebellion of the old days, you know, it reminded me right. of those days in the Grateful Dead office when we were planning to buy Paul Cantor a box of grenades, <laughs> you know? I'm going, whoa, good for you, Kurt, you know? Hey, Kurt, you know, I never met you, but man, you're cool. Well, she spent a lot of time making sure I never met him, because we might have got along. Uh, I just have two more questions for you in sure. the time that we have now. But anyway, that's what's in the book. Well, and again, I don't know what if you can speak to this or if you wish to, uh, but I'll just say this. Uh, usually, if not always, when you have a conspiracy to do something, which is, in this case, assassination, uh, there has to be something or someone who benefits. Uh, can you speak to all uh, to what that might be? Thirty-six million. Follow the money. Yeah. But that's just the beginning. Uh, Giffen had every, well, first of all, if you know anything about the recording industry, when you get your big stars like Guns N' Roses and the Beatles and people like that, you always, or Janis Joplin, you always have a clause in the contract which gives the, the record company or producers a way out if this, if the star dies or is overdosed or gets hit, up, hit by a truck, you get an insurance policy, right? Mm -hmm. So that insurance policy has never been mentioned and in any book, and it, was, it did exist. It had nothing to do with suicide. It was just if you die and you're a rock star and you owe us money when you die or you owe us records when you die, we get a policy. See? So... At the same time that happened, Geffen was in bed with Disney and uh, Spielberg to form DreamWorks. And so they had to come up with a billion each. The story is they had to come up with a billion each to uh, build DreamWorks, which is doing Jack Black's panda thing now, right? DreamWorks. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. SGK. And so... That was exactly the time when Kurt was starting to drop out. He had fulfilled, Nirvana had fulfilled their contracts to DGC, and they did not want to go back. Uh, Dave Grohl wanted to do his own band, had already started his own band. Uh, Chris had already gone back to try to do politics and wanted to be mayor of Seattle. Believe it or not, he was going to do gigs, but he wanted to pretty much go back into politics. He had enough money. Courtney made them give money back, as you know, by the way. And uh, they didn't like Kurt after that anyway, because they thought he was wimpy for giving it to Courtney. And then Kurt wanted to start his own band, probably with one of the girls as a bass player from either... either uh, Babes in Toyland. You heard of that band? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cat Jelland right. or Kristen Pfaff or somebody like that. And guess what? Kristen Pfaff died a month later. And Cat hasn't been heard of since. So there's a lot going on there that we don't know a lot of. We don't know all the details, but we got to go ahead and finish the book anyway. So. We're leaving some of it speculative and some of it open at the end, but there's enough material in the book to 700, 700 pages, by the way. I couldn't remember wow. it. Wow. 685, which includes all the indexes, all the gig lists, everything you need to know to solve the problem, solve the crime yourself. It's just going to require some study, that's all. Uh, let me just clear one thing up. Um, his death was, was officially pronounced as a suicide, correct? Right. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that obviate any uh, chance that anyone could collect on any life insurance? No. No. Well, that's what everybody thinks. That's right. That's what everybody hopes you think. It's not true at all. Uh, every once in a while, you'll see a non-suicidal pact. The majority of life insurance policies that you and I could purchase would have that in them, yes. But this is, wasn't necessarily a normal, everyday life insurance policy. This was a life insurance policy that was pretty much set up by the recording company to protect them in case the star died. Now, I'm not saying Courtney got any of that money for the life insurance policy. 
I'm talking about Geffen getting money for the life insurance policy. See what I'm saying? Uh-huh. But Courtney got... He, he had gone, Kurt had gone, I don't know if you know this or not, but Kurt had gone down to his lawyer and said, I want a divorce immediately. He gave her a piece of paper, which he signed and gave it to her. She put it in the back of her drawer and didn't act on it. Then he said, you know, we can't act on this because this is wrong. Uh, we're going to have to have an intervention on this poor bastard because he doesn't know what he's doing, which was wrong. He didn't know what he was doing. And so it turns out that his lawyer was the girlfriend of his manager, Gold Mountain, and that Courtney was having three ways with those two. At the same time, all the time that was going on, they were managing both Courtney's band and Kurt's band. So, so there's a conflict of interest there, which they don't want anybody to know about, just because... They did the wrong thing at the wrong time. They didn't do anything to actually get Kurt killed. They just didn't act. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it was the absence of action, not necessarily any kind of covert action. It's a whole series of absences of actions that took place or didn't take place that caused that whole event to blow up. You have to read the book. I'm not, I'm not plugging the book, but it's no, that's right out, straight sure. out there. And last question, and uh, starting out, uh, ending the way we started out. Um, and, and I don't mean to be trite about this. I just, I just have to ask you. In, in watching what took place with Kurt Cobain, uh, the industry and such, and and, and right. all the shadowy things that are going on around, it, was it reminiscent at all? Was there any similarities uh, to any of, I guess, those rock stars who died? And, and what you could consider a certain rash of them? Troy Janice, who I knew personally, uh, I didn't know her well, but I knew her well enough, and I certainly know. Right now, I'm in touch with a guy named Richard Hudgens, Sweet Richard, who was the manager for Big Brother and the Holding Company. And Richard has the dirt. And you, you, to answer you, I guess that's the question you're asking. Yeah, it's yeah. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, just like we, I had said to you, I mean, you know, growing up and, and witnessing these assassinations, uh, some that were not successful, uh, you, you know, and it was a flurry of stuff that took place in a certain window of time. And now the same thing that with uh, with those in rock and roll, you know, with Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin and, uh, and Morrison. that the business deal has been the same since the old, I'll even go back as far as the doo-wop days when they would put out one contract and one guy would get all the money and they'd sell about 200,000 copies and they'd get paid for about 200 copies, you know. The, you know, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, for example. It goes all the way back to the corruption of the, of the way the contracts were built and signed and the way the record industry distributes through the payola and through the... Um, the paybacks to ASCAP and uh, BMI for air airplay, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, real quick too, I think his name is Richie. I'm not sure, but in '72 I met one of the members of the 1910 Procom Company, and uh-huh. who, went, who went on to tell me that, and here, and here you go, that his managers were also the record label owners. Exactly. And that's why he wasn't in the fruit gum company anymore. He got real, he was, you know, all those gold records. He said, you know, no, I don't have one of them. It's all gone. Yeah. Well, I never had it to lose it. But, I mean, here's an example. Yeah, you're right, where uh, it was very draconian as far as the relationship. Sure. And, and it goes, you know, even a, a company, a group as, as significant as the Grateful Dead or as insignificant as Leaves uh, uh, of Grass or some other small group, you know, would have the same kind of problem. I mean, I remember sitting there with contracts on my desk, with talking to Phil Lesh, smoking a joint, drinking coffee, and trying to figure out what in the hell is going on here. This is so dra- I use the perfect word draconian. Mm. That means uh, pre-Christian, <laughs> Roman, and extremely severe, <laughs> based on Draconis, the famous general. Of, uh, that that we couldn't figure it out, and so we had to hire the lawyers, and then the lawyers, all they have to do is make up some crap and then make a phone call to the, the guy who has the contract and say, look, I'm the lawyer, pay me, and I'll, and I'll lie. You know, so the whole thing is like, gosh, and, and Kurt knew it, Cobain knew it, and Cobain just wanted to march off to his own drummer. 
And he was, that's what he was doing the night he was shot. That's what he was doing. He was on his way out of town, probably with a new bass player or a new independent mindset. And that's what the book's about. So, you know. We've been, speak yeah. we've been speaking with Hank. All right. Sorry, Hank. I didn't mean to step on you. No, I've seen it before. That's the whole, whole point I'm trying okay. to make. Yes. And, uh, and Hank Harrison, again, uh, has been with us for this a uh, little bit more than an hour. Uh, his book uh, that will be coming out uh, is Love Kills, the Assassination of Kurt Cobain. He has many more titles available. Please go to his website. He's challenged you, too, that if you want to drop him a line, he'll actually answer you if you're nice. So, um, Hank, I'm going to... you can write. Huh? If you can spell... If you can write. <laughs> I mean, if you're an ape scratching your butt, I'm not going to write back. But if you've got a brain, I'll write back. Okay. All right, Hank, thank you very much for being sure. with us, and I appreciate the time. It's wonderful. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye now.